Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Published or Not has been around for years, but now Jan Goldsmith is joined by... David McLean. We will chat about words and writing, authors and audiences, publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR. Published or not, every Thursday, 11.30 till noon. When you get home, baby, a few your And a good morning to everyone out there. David McLean here, Published or Not, and we are joined by... Ewan Mitchell. Hi, David. Good day, Ewan. Welcome back. It was a lonely uh, studio without you last <laughs> it week. It was last week, yes. Events conspired. <laughs> conspired to overwhelm you. But we've got two authors in, so we'd better make a start. Now, Ewan, as you've probably found out with the banking inquiry, <laughs> finance can be a bloody and heartless affair... And when we read Megan Golden's The Escape Room, we also find out that it is quite deadly. So, Megan, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks for having me back on the show. Now, escape rooms, I actually haven't heard of this concept before. Can you clarify what an escape room is and why they're used? It's a very millennial thing. So, <laughs> um, um, they're becoming very popular. They're rooms that people go into for team building activities or for bucks nights or something. And you're, you're given a whole lot of clues to get out. And you have to solve those clues in order to get out of the room within a certain period of time. But your escape room is a rather confined elevator indeed, where these uh, corporate uh, sort of entities have gathered. And I'm just thinking the challenges of writing uh, and describing in such a confined and contained space might have been, it might have been quite difficult for you. Yes, it it was difficult, but it was one of the things that I think um, I was um, excited about when I started writing the book, the challenge of setting a a thriller in a very small uh, area and, um, as you say, a confined space. Because they can't go anywhere. They can't... uh, go off stage and exit stage right or, or do whatever. So what did you have to concentrate on then for to build that atmosphere in the elevator? Well, I guess there was the plus side of setting it in an elevator was it's a, effectively a psychological thriller. And so what I wanted to do was put them in a sort of a pressure cooker environment where they're uh, the sort of veneer of civility that, uh, that covers them sort of melts and the, the real people then come out. Well, that's a good cue into the people that we actually have in there. There are four characters, Vincent, Sylvie, Sam and Jules. And the nature of these characters, the lifestyles of these four characters, leave a lot to be desired because what sort of industry are they involved in and what sort of personality types are they? Well, they're all uh, Wall Street investment bankers, and we all know about bankers and bankers' bonuses. So th- th- these are them. These are investment bankers in you know the world's greediest place, effectively, and they are very much motivated by money and by ambition. And they're encouraged to, in fact, you know, make more profit at the expense of other people, at the expense of each other, in many ways. That's right. And not only are they encouraged to make more money, but they. Um, 
they're caught in this trap of keeping up with the Joneses because no matter how rich they get, there's always going to be somebody richer than them. And to what extent would one be prepared to go in this competitive world? That's part of uh, the psychology of it all. But you also have a second thread running through this story, as told by one Sarah Hall, who once worked with these four. And this allows for a greater dimension because... Sarah sort of fleshes out the backdrop um, in terms of her coming into the company, working with these people, and what leads up to the elevator. So that's given you greater scope then to explore the whole corporate financial world. That's right. Sarah is a different plot line that effectively allows us to learn a lot more about these characters who are stuck in the elevator and why they're there. And Sarah's one of the newbies who's trying to make it in the corporate world. And what uh, we see is what she's subjected to, uh, what she's the lengths she's prepared to go to, uh, to um, succeed. Because it's, it's identified as the epitome of success. But here's the interesting thing. You make things a little more intriguing. Because we discover from Vincent, Sylvie, Sam and Jules that... Their team has suffered two losses, two deaths, one of whom is Sarah. They tell us Sarah has, in fact, died. And the other one was uh, Lucy Marshall, whose death is suspicious. So this is a rather fascinating uh, sort of narrative device where somebody who's dead is telling a story. So what's this doing to the reader in many ways? Well, it's a thriller, so hopefully it's keeping them on their toes and, and turning the pages. Well, we've got but... to find out um, how these deaths occurred in many ways because um, what we've got uh, with these two narrative threads, the, the first one in the elevator, we actually already know the outcome. You've got a prologue uh, which describes a sort of bloody aftermath when the elevator doors are open. So we know, the reader knows the outcome of that particular thread, and we don't know the outcome of Sarah's thread, so we've got to read on. But I'd suggest it starts changing the focus the reader has onto some of the issues and concerns of the corporate world. Was that your intention? It's a thriller, but it also has a certain amount of social commentary, and um, the characters in the in the elevator are... They're characters that um, I think many of us deal with in wherever we work in our workplaces and we deal with uh, in, in the news. And, you know, I mentioned bankers' bonuses. There's a Royal Commission into banking at the moment. So I did want to try and bring in certain themes that go beyond the thriller genre to make the readers think. Well, you do inform us of uh, some of the more pertinent issues in the world of finance, ethics. Now, here's one for you, uh, Sarah uh, is being interviewed by Richie. Richie wore a dark grey suit with a fitted white shirt. His cufflinks were Hermes, arranged so that the H insignia was clearly visible. On his wrist was an Audemars Piguet watch, a 30 grand piece that told everyone who cared that he was the very model of a Wall Street player. Richie left me on the edge of my seat, waiting awkwardly as he read over my resume. Paper rustled as he scanned the neatly formatted sheets that summed up my life in two pages... I had the impression that he was looking at it for the first time. When he was done, he examined me over the top of the pages, 
with the lascivious expression of a John sizing up girls at a Nevada whorehouse. You look cold. Do you want me to turn off the air conditioning? He asked with a half smirk as he meaningfully lowered his eyes. Confused by the question, I looked down to where his eyes had settled. They were lingering on my nipples, the outlines of which were visible through the fabric of my top. I immediately turned red. His smirk turned into a full-blown grin. He was enjoying every second of my discomfort. The line had sounded rehearsed. Ritchie had deliberately cranked the meeting room's thermostat to the coldest setting to provoke that psychological response. It was a cheap parlour trick. I guessed that he'd played it before with other female candidates. It's the psychology of what's going on behind all of this that's intriguing as well. Yeah, there there is a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of psychology in terms of what made, motivates the different types of um, characters. Um, and in the case of Richie, um, I the second part of that interview, he then opens up a bag of nuts and starts stuffing them into his mouth and crunching throughout the rest of the interview. So every time he asks her a question, she starts answering and then he starts eating more nuts. But it's a ploy. To... It, to humiliate her, yes, it, it is. I mean, and, and that's one of the themes of the novel is sexism and he's sexist and he doesn't want to hire a woman and he wants to, and he's on a power trip and he wants to humiliate her. And the thing is that I think that many of the listeners of this program probably have been in not exactly that situation, but they've been in situations with interviews where people have been on power trips. But this is the corporate world where people are in fact taught these little uh techniques, uh, games, in order to win an advantage over the other in some ways. I mean, uh, a lot's been made of Donald Trump's handshakes and, and things like that. It's, it's all artificial manipulation. That's the world in which this is set in some ways. Yeah, and it's the world that we live in because, um, you know, throughout human history, you know, we were cavemen and then we were hunters and gatherers and then we were, you know, farmers and merchants and so on. And, you know, for the past hundred years or so, we've been living our habitat as sort of intelligent primates is, um, is corporate environments. And we use the same techniques that we used when we were cavemen. We just do it in a more refined way in, a, in an office. Well, it sh- sort of shows how thin that veneer of ethics and morality and civility really is when we're prepared to basically eat each other to, to gain an advantage. And that, that's exposed in the elevator when it's, it's concentrated. But Sarah's uh, narrative sort of exposes it more fully. The whole question of gender in these, this corporate world. Now, Sylvie's an interesting case in point because she's actually prepared to use her sexuality to get advantage. And she does it in the elevator, siding up to, to Vincent. So... Are women as um, sort of guilty as men in this instance? Yes, yeah, Sylvie is. She's playing the game and she uses her sexuality. And she also is is among uh, probably of all of them the one who kind of um, suppresses Sarah. She sees her as a threat. Um, and you know there are there are some women in some corporate environments who do that to women. There's a fair bit of research on that. Yeah. Well, Sylvie has the opportunity to support Sarah, but doesn't go through with it. Um, you've got corruption. You've got revenge. So all of these threads start to emerge as we go through the story, basically with what's going on in the elevator, but with Sarah's fuller account of what happened. Eventually, 
um, Sarah is marginalised. It was several weeks later that I noticed slight, almost imperceptible changes at work. I was excluded from meetings that I would ordinarily have attended. At first, it didn't bother me. If anything, I was grateful. I chalked it up to Vincent considerately allowing me to ease back into work after my father's death. When it continued for several weeks, I began to worry that it was permanent. And so all of this eating away, it's sort of slow and gradual, as if there's sort of acid dissolving it away it's 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 oh ugly yeah and that's i mean that often is what happens people today we work in companies and um you know in the past you'd get a job for life and these days increasingly so you know you you you, it's very fleeting and you're asked to give a lot of loyalty to the company but the company doesn't give loyalty back to you and your job can be made redundant at a turn of a hat you know your contracts only uh for as long as necessary the other thing here then is you also quote uh, Sun Tzu and the art of war. The supreme art of war is to subdue the enemy without fighting. And this is what actually happens inside the elevator. Somebody is getting a form of revenge on the others and it's so easy for these this sort of attitude to be turned back on the people themselves, putting them in a concentrated environment. What are you saying about human nature and and people generally? <laughs> well, certainly in this book, I think justice was poetic. But um, yes, they the fact that they are in an elevator brings out the worst in them, and they weren't very nice people when they got into the elevator. And <laughs> well, we actually find out because by the time we get to the end of the elevator sequence, almost to the end, we find out who has committed the murders, the reasons they've committed the murders and in fact they've are able to virtually justify murders and murder to themselves uh, for their own gain because it's part of that corporate attitude it's quite intriguing um so yes we do discover the murders we find out what's happened uh we find out what all the issues are in the world of finance but the listener and the reader are going to have to find out for themselves uh who was murdering whom and for what reason (laughs) and uh, find out all about it in The Escape Room by Megan Golding and it's released by Penguin. So, Megan, thank you for coming in today. Thank you so much. I'm intrigued. The Escape Room. I like Wall Street books. I just re-watched The the Big Short recently. Thank you very much, uh, David and Megan. We now have uh, my guest this morning, Enza Gandolfo. Enza's first novel, Swimming, in 2009, was highly acclaimed by critics as well as fellow writers, including Helen Garner. Uh, Enza has since co-authored three non-fiction books, but this morning she's with me in the studio to discuss a very moving new second novel, The Bridge. Welcome to Published or Not, Enza Gandolfo. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure to have you here. Enza, the bridge is set around the Westgate Bridge in Melbourne over four decades. I'd like to start by asking you what you think many Melbournians know or remember about the collapse of the Westgate Bridge before we get into the story itself. Well, it depends partly on your age and what generation you are. What I've found as I've been working on this book over the last sort of seven years, so it's been a long time in writing, is that whenever I talk about it, uh, people who are, you know, my age or 
you know, a bit older, will have a story. So I've I've been given, you know, people tell me stories where they were. Everyone seems to remember where they were the day that the bridge collapsed. Where were you the day it collapsed? I was at high school. I was in um, year seven um, or form one in those days um, at Footscray Girls, so not very far from where the uh, bridge where the bridge is and I, I do remember the principal at an announcement coming over into the classroom telling us or asking for girls who might have had relatives working on the Westgate Bridge to come to the office. At that stage we didn't know there'd been an accident but, you know, certainly by the time I got home there were... I live in. I lived not very far away from the bridge in Yarraville in a very working class area. There were my neighbours were out in the street and everyone was talking about the collapse of the bridge and very concerned about what had happened and what would have happened to the men who were working there. I'm intrigued the how you came up with Antonella. Now he's the main character in your book, or one of the main characters, but he's the one you lead with. Can you tell us uh, about the research or how did you come to construct and depict Antonello so beautifully? Oh, thank you. Um, look, I, I've been thinking about writing about the Westgate Bridge for a really long time. I think it's a story that needs to be told. I wish a historian, a Labor historian, would do some actual factual work on it. I think it's a really important um, story to tell. Because I believe it is is still Australia's worst industrial accident, is that right? That's right. That's my understanding as well. That supports what you're saying. And hopefully it will continue to be Australia's worst industrial accident. I mean, some of those, the survivors of that um, collapse have worked very hard to improve um, industrial safety on workplaces through their involvement in the unions. So, mm. you know, that's part of their legacy, really. Um, so I'd been thinking about it for a really long time and then I was working on uh, a project that you might be a bit familiar with that was on op shops that I did yep. with Sue Dodd mm. and I interviewed this um, 80-year-old volunteer at St Vincent's oh, in okay. St Albans and after the interview discussion about op shops, um, he told me that he'd worked on the Westgate Bridge, uh, but that he'd worked on it after it collapsed, you know, when they finished the building it. And he was actually in Ireland during the collapse, but his brother was on the on the bridge when it collapsed. He survived, but he was on the bridge. And he'd lost lots of friends. Did he, did he write it down as some... When you say he was on the bridge, was he actually on the span that collapsed? Because some people did write it down. And they, um, I don't really mm. know where his brother was when mm. when he, it collapsed. He, you know, he didn't crew. really... Yeah. Um, Frank didn't tell me, but... Um, he talked a lot about the com- feeling compelled to go and work on the bridge to make sure it was going to be safe in, in the rebuild, right? So those 35 deaths weren't in vain. Yeah. So And he really inspired Antonello, even though Antonello's Italian and uh, Frank was Irish. Um, but that idea that of um, this person... You know, in in this case, Antonello is actually there on the day, but he survives. So I really started to think about writing from a survivor's perspective. And Antonello's 22. He's newly married to Paolino. He's fresh, optimistic, and he's somewhat of an artist too. What's he painting? He's painting the bridge. So he's fascinated by the bridge. He's always been... um, He's loved drawing since he was a kid um, in Sicily, but he, and even at high school when he arrived in Australia, drawing is the thing that sort of um, he loved doing the most. 
not that he ever saw himself as an artist in that sense. And so he becomes fascinated by the bridge and he does a lot of sketches of the bridge. And I wanted that in there because one of the things I discovered in my research um, was that the men were in love with the bridge. The men loved that they were working on this bridge that was going to make a big difference to the city. Um, and I don't know if you remember because you would have been much younger than me, yeah, but Melbournians <laughs> were hanging out for this bridge. Oh, sure. Join you know? the two sides of the city. Yeah, there was but, a viewing platform. Yeah. People went and had picnics there. Oh, I remember know? looking it up and crossing the punt that has yeah. uh, been revived since, but looking up and talking about, oh, well, why don't it be great when it's finished, the bridge? Yeah, and mm. so, you know, we as the city, it was not like infrastructure these days where we just go, oh, they're building another freeway. Yeah. I mean, the bridge was, um, people were very excited Hope. about it. And there Progress. was and yeah. progress. Yeah. And so I really, I guess, yeah, I want it through Antonello for us to get a sense of how much how much pride those men had in working on the bridge and how much they loved it. Now, I've got to say, I was wondering when I uh, started the book, when will the bridge come down? And I'm say to readers, it actually... <laughs> Uh, it's in the first chapter, and you think, oh, well, gee, the, the, you know, it is not about uh, so much the bridge coming down and what led to it, although that does come out. It is about the consequences, not only the collapse, but then events that happen over four decades and uh, three threads of story that are wound together really well. But what haunted me after reading all those three, three f- threads was the pinging and popping of the bolts that were removed that caused the bridge to collapse. So, Enzo, I'm hoping just to, uh, if listeners could get a taste of the description, because this was, it. Uh, I'd never, um, it came to life for me in a way that I'd never seen. I just thought it came down, so it came down flat. But your description, and while uh, we won't read all the description, we'll leave some for the listeners, um, if you could start with a paragraph that talks about the pinging and popping, <laughs> uh, that would be terrific and give us about a page it, uh, of that uh, haunting description. Okay. On the span, several men were working frantically. He couldn't see what they were doing, but he could see the sense of urgency of it and the despair. Whatever they were trying wasn't working. Something was wrong, very wrong. As Antonello whispered a short prayer, please God keep them safe, and made the sign of the cross over his chest, there was a series of loud, eerie, pinging and popping sounds like shots from a rifle, and the men on the span scattered. What the bloody hell was, yelled a man standing next to Antonello, but before he could finish, the massive span shifted. Men struggled to keep upright. The span groaned and shrieked as metal scraped on metal. There was a thunderous crack, followed by more screeching and rasping and a hailing of dust and concrete and sharp flakes of rust. Fuck, it's going to fall. The fucking bridge is going to fall. The voice came from behind Antonello. We need to get out of here. Around him, men were yelling and looking up, beginning to run. But Antonello was too stunned to move. He couldn't make sense of what was happening. What was happening? Was the whole bridge going to collapse? How could they get the men down? We have to do something, he said to the men around him, all of them staring up at the bridge. We have to help. It's too fucking late, someone said. They're goners. There was an agonising groan as the span the rigging team had spent the last few days hoisting up moved again. It was caving in the centre now and the men were trapped mid-air. They stumbled, slid and slipped. They were bashed by flying debris. Their arms reached for the sides of the girder for something, but there was nothing. 
Gas bottles, drums, pieces of cha- pieces of timber, chains and bolts spun and rolled and fell over the edges, turning into airborne missiles. Another jolt. The span was almost vertical now. A stiff-legged derrick loosened from its mooring, catapulted towards the river, its long metal arms flaying violently, a giant possessed. And now the men, the men were falling, falling off, falling through the air and into the river below. They were screaming, but their cries were muffled by the bridge's own deathly groans. Whoa, that will haunt me for a long time. (laughs) Now, moving on from there, you uh, moved to 2009. Two girls, Joe and Ashley, and they're both finishing their year 12 at a local high school uh, near Yarraville. And a tragedy happens. I don't know how much you want to say about it, but how is the tragedy connected with the bridge? Well, the tragedy is a car accident um, and it happens at the base of the bridge. Um, jo is a working-class girl. She lives in, in a house that's basically across the road from the refineries and across the road from the bridge. Um, so that, in a sense, is, is the connection with the bridge. But the connection is also um, around. I mean, there are there is also a, a connection with Antonella, which I I don't want to talk about. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Just because I think it's no, no, we don't want spoilers. spoilers. <laughs> no, no spoilers. Um, but I, um, it's also for me, you know, about the bridge as a symbol and about what it means to the city and the fact that the bridge that it happens there, I guess, raises a whole lot of issues about. Um, Places that, you know, I don't know if you know Maria Tamarkin's book, uh, Trauma Scapes, about no, the idea that um, some places sort of have a haunting yeah. because traumas have happened there and there's a kind of ghostly presence. Um, so that is one of the connections I had um, with that. As well as that ghostly presence, you also mentioned oil refineries. That's something you've captured really well in the book, is living in Yarraville, the things that people learn to put up with, the the trucks, for instance, roaring through and the residents' protests against them, the oil refineries. And uh, Coot Island, going back to 1991, well, 21 years after the Westgate in 1970, there was another blaze uh, and a disaster and so much that the residents of that area uh, have to put up with and they protest against and very little is done. Um, You really captured that well in the book. Uh, Living in Yarraville, um, how do you cope with those sorts of things every day? Do you just put it out of your mind or...? Do you, do you join those protests? What do you do? Well, I've lived in Yarraville um, on and off all of my life and um, Yarraville's a very different place now to what it was when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s. It's quite gentrified now and there's a lot less industries. But, of course, still there is the traffic and Coot Island is yeah. still there yeah. even though a lot of us campaigned in the 90s to try and get it moved. Um, so... You don't forget those things. I mean, it's it's a real um, – it's a bit of a paradox in a way because I have a lot of empathy for truck drivers even though I hate trucks <laughs> because, you know, I, they well, were my neighbours when yeah, I was yeah. growing up, it's you know. My, my The fathers of my friends, you know, a couple of them were truck drivers yeah. and they were just ordinary blokes and they are ordinary yep. blokes trying to make Any a living. living. Mm. Um, sometimes I wish they wouldn't drive so fast. <laughs> Um, and it is dangerous when it's, you know, I mean, as you probably know, they drive past a couple of primary schools in that area as well. Mm-hmm. 
well. So there's always that that tension. I I really wanted to capture the industrial West. I think you, you know, as a city, we um, we need those industrial spaces, and as a city, we don't acknowledge the cost of that to some of the residents who can't afford to move away from those yeah. industrial spaces. So I guess I really want to capture some of the dilemmas for people who don't have a choice about where they live and that's where they live in the industrial west. And Antonello is convinced it's going to fall again. Not that we would wish that, but that's another haunting aspect, a dilemma that he's living with. And uh, I did a bit of research before uh, coming on air and found it. Uh, in August 2007, after the collapse of a bridge in Minnesota, that within four or five days, the Victorian government announced a $240 million plan to reinforce the Westgate because it was not designed to carry the volume of traffic and the weight of vehicles. But we'll, we'll leave it there because uh, I really enjoyed reading your book, Enza, and it's called The Bridge by Enza Gandolfo. It's published by Scribe. And thanks also to our earlier guest this morning, Megan Golden, and her book, The Escape Room, published by Penguin. Thank you very much for joining Thank us you. on Publisher Lot this morning. Thanks, you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.